Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 67, Why Did It Have to End? Last episode, we recounted how Russia celebrated numerous historical events before it was plunged into World War I, totally unprepared. The tragic human toll on the brave Russian soldiers and the people left behind were staggering. The pressure on Nicholas II to abdicate was growing and coming from all sides. Now, this episode, before we get into the next set of rulers, the Provisional Government and the Soviet Union, I'd like to take a look back at all of the missteps that Nicholas took that led him to the precipice of abdication and the plunging of Russia into a revolution and a civil war. I will attempt to do all of this chronologically, as I think it will lead to a, a greater amount of clarity. The assassination of his grandfather, the great reformer, Alexander II, must have had a huge influence on who Nicholas was to become. The scene of his grandfather dying in front of him when he was just 12 is the kind of event that never leaves you. That and the subsequent reaction to the assassination by his father molded him into the ultra-reactionary Tsar he would become. Secondly, I think Nicholas's stature as compared to his father was a contributing factor as to his personality. He was said to be jealous of his larger-than-life father, Alexander III, although he did love him dearly. His father was a mountain of a man, and frankly, Nicholas was built more like his mother than his father. Another way in which he was different from his father was his upbringing. Nicholas was trained very poorly, whereas Alexander was trained very carefully to be Tsar. And despite insistence from many of Alexander's ministers and aides, Nicholas was not being trained to become heir to the throne. Sergei Vite, for his part, finally convinced the Tsarevich's father to give him a position that would help him to learn how to manage part of the empire. In 1890, at the age of 22, Nicholas was named chairman of the Trans-Siberian Railway Committee, despite protestations from his father, saying he was way too immature. Of course, no one thought it was necessary to prepare Nicholas, as his father was only 45 at the time and would probably live a long life. Unfortunately for the Romanovs, he was to die four years later at the age of 49. Nicholas was completely unprepared to become Tsar. Next up, as a probable cause of some of his problems, was his choice of a bride, Princess Alex of Hesse-Darmstadt. She was an extremely shy woman who came off as standoffish and arrogant. Additionally, she was a descendant of the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, and the carrier of a disease that was to haunt the family. She gave birth to a number of healthy and beautiful girls, but only one boy, Alexis, who was afflicted with hemophilia. This disease and its effect on the family were devastating. That and the appearance of a weak heir to the throne was another negative image that the Romanovs did not need. Then came the day that gave the Tsar his nickname, Bloody Nicholas, the tragedy at the Kodinka field. The day was May 18, 1896, and the people were getting ready to get their coronation souvenirs when things went terribly wrong. In the ensuing stampede, close to 1,400 people died, with a similar number being injured. 
the Russian people, a superstitious lot, believed that this was a bad omen for the monarchy, and in particular Tsar Nicholas II's reign. Since there were already calls for reform and the beginnings of the talk of revolution, those opposed to the Tsar used this day as a symbol of all that was wrong with the autocratic rule of the Romanovs. But good things started happening about this time, but not really due to the policy of Nicholas, but due to a remarkable man, Sergei Vite. He put Russia on the gold standard, which improved the economy almost immediately. He initiated a number of other financial reforms, and by 1902 had completed first parts of the Trans-Siberian Railway, which opened up the Far East. But Nicholas's managerial style was to not trust anyone and to pit one minister against another. So when Vite slipped up in his personal life, having an affair with a married Jewish woman, other jealous ministers forced his removal. While opening the Far East was supposedly good economically, it was to present a far greater danger to the monarchy as it put Russia into an antagonistic stance against a growing power in the region, Japan. In a mere 40 years, Japan went from a feudal, isolated nation to an industrial juggernaut. They viewed Russian expansionism into the Korean Peninsula as a threat to their ever-growing holdings in China, and because of it, they declared war on Russia. Sergei Vite had warned the Tsar that this was inevitable and that Russia was woefully unprepared to fight a war thousands of miles away, but his protestations went unheeded. This led to the Russo-Japanese War, which was a complete debacle for the Russians. Nicholas and his pro-war ministers were convinced that they were a vastly superior power and could handle the Japanese with ease. This cockiness was to be part of their undoing. By now, the people were disgusted with the way the leadership handled the war, as Russian soldiers acted with extreme bravery. This was to foretell an even greater loss just nine years later. Before and during the Russo-Japanese War, Russia solidified and deepened their relationship with France and later Great Britain in opposition to the growing militarism of Germany and Austria-Hungary. They also developed a stronger pan-Slavic policy, bringing them closer to their Orthodox brethren in, in Serbia and putting themselves at greater odds with the Germans and Austrians. In 1905, at the height of the losses in the war, on January 22nd, a peaceful demonstration asking the Tsar to enact reforms in his country was met with bullets, killing hundreds of formerly loyal workers on a day that was to be known as Bloody Sunday. Led by the socialist-leaning priest Father Gapon, the marchers carried pro-Nicholas banners, singing God Save the Tsar. But no one was at the Winter Palace, where the Tsar normally stayed. Instead, police opened fire on the demonstrators. Now, with the blood of his own people on his hands, Nicholas was under enormous pressure to either step down or change the monarchy. Father Capone sent out a message to his followers soon after the shootings that went like this, quote, Nicholas Romanov, formerly Tsar and at present sole murderer of the Russian Empire, the innocent blood of workers, their wives and children, lies forever between you and the Russian people. 
May all the blood which must be spilled fall upon you, you hangman. I call upon all socialist parties of Russia to come to an immediate agreement among themselves and bring an armed uprising against Tsarism. From there on through the year, riots, protests, and strikes crippled the country, with the word revolution spreading everywhere, which caused Nicholas II to issue the October Man Manifesto, creating a constitutional monarchy by creating an elected Duma to help run the government. This was one of those fulcrum points in history where the right move would undo all of the bad that occurred previously and might have changed the course of history and allowed Nicholas to stay in power as Tsar Batushka, or Tsar Father. But, as we know, this was not the road this Tsar was going to go down. Within months, he, with the backing of his able-minded but reactionary minister, Pyotr Stolyapin, issued the fundamental laws, which basically created a rubber-stamp Duma with little power. Still, by the time the third Duma was seated, they began to have more and more say in the running of things, such as being able to interview government ministers behind closed doors. Stolyapin was behind this change, but was met with increasing pressure from the conservative members of the imperial court, who took the view that the Duma was a scar on the face of the monarchy and the autocratic rule of Nicholas. Stolyapin, though, was assassinated in 1911 by a lone gunman who, although a radical liberal, was likely helped by conservative elements to take out the prime minister. Another cause for the demise of the Romanov dynasty that is much talked about is the appearance and influence of one man, Grigory Rasputin, at the imperial court. A crude individual, this supposed Staretz, or holy man, seemed to be able to control Tsarevich Alexis's hemophilia. This endeared him to the royal family, especially the widely disliked Tsarina Alexandra. Rasputin was hated by many on the right and held up as an example of the decay of the Tsar by the left. Even with his murder on December 16, 1916, the smearing of the image of the Tsar was almost complete. A perfect storm was brewing, though that would cause the fall of the monarchy, and that was World War I. Russia, its alliances set with France and Great Britain, against Germany and Austria-Hungary, pushed things to the brink of war with the Pan-Slavic alliance with Serbia, causing the explosion following the assassination of Grand Duke Ferdinand of Austria and Sarajevo. Russia plunged headfirst into a war it had no business being in, as it was totally unprepared for it. First, appointing his incompetent cousin as a commander, then taking the reins of war himself, Nicholas II led millions of his Russian people into battle with few effective weapons, allowing for mass slaughter by the Axis forces. Tens of thousands of men deserted every month, bringing back tales of horror. The people began to stir up again, no longer satisfied with the constitutional monarchy and the incompetency of their Tsar. They wanted a change, and they wanted it now. Nicholas, for his part, was 500 miles away trying to run a war that could not be won.
The Duma begged the Tsar to return to the newly renamed capital, Petrograd, but he refused. He was misinformed that everything in the capital was under control. But it wasn't. The people, despite warnings, took to the streets demanding that Nicholas abdicate. It was early 1917, and coupled with the cold and the lack of food, people began to riot. Again, Nicholas did not return to the capital, believing that all would be taken care of by his troops stationed there. But he was woefully mistaken. These were not the loyal, well-trained troops of the past. They lay dead on the fields in Germany and the Ukraine. They were young boys in training, or old men, tired of war and tired of the strife. Then Nicholas ordered that the rioters and looters be shot and order restored. It was too late. Some of the troops refused to shoot the people gathered in the streets, instead some shooting the officers who gave the orders. On March 12, 1917, the troops began to defect to the side of the people. First were the Volinsky Regiment, followed by the Samovonsky, Litovsky, and finally the Priobrazhenskoy Regiment, the one founded by Peter the Great, joined the revolution. The 60,000 troops in Petrograd, along with the hundreds of thousands of people, demanded that the Tsar abdicate. He had no choice. So on March 15, 1917, Nicholas Alexandrovich Romanov resigned as Tsar of Russia, thereby ending the over 300-year reign of the Romanov family over Russia. The now deposed emperor issued the following statement, quote, In the days of the great struggle against the foreign enemies, who for nearly three years have tried to enslave our fatherland, the Lord God has been pleased to send down on Russia a new heavy trial. Internal popular disturbances threaten to have a disastrous effect on the future conduct of this persistent war. The destiny of Russia, the honor of our heroic army, the welfare of the people and the whole future of our dear fatherland demand that the war should be brought to a victorious conclusion, whatever the cost. The cruel enemy is making his last efforts, and already the hour approaches when our glorious army, together with our gallant allies, will crush him. In these decisive days in the life of Russia, we thought it our duty of conscience to facilitate for our people the closest union possible, and a consolidation of all national forces for the speedy attainment of victory. In agreement with the Imperial Duma, we have thought it well to renounce the throne of Russian Empire and lay down the supreme power. As we do not wish to part from our beloved son, we transmit the succession to our brother, the Grand Duke Michael Alexandrovich and give him our blessing to mount the throne of the Russian Empire. We direct our brother to conduct the affairs of state in full and inviolable union with the representatives of the people and the legislative bodies on those principles which will be established by them and on which he will take an inviolable oath. In the name of our dearly beloved homeland, we call on our faithful sons of the fatherland to fulfill sacred duty to the fatherland, 
to obey the Tsar in the heavy moment of national trials, and to help him, together with the representatives of the people, to guide the Russian Empire on the road to victory, welfare, and glory. May the Lord God help Russia. Grand Duke Michael, the Tsar's brother, refused the call to be named Tsar. This statement was also suppressed by the new provisional government, led first by Grigory Livov. The end of an era. Join me next episode as we follow the lives of the former royal family through their travels through Russia, their appeals for asylum, and their eventual, eventual murder at the hands of the new leaders that were to take over Russia for the next 74 years, the Bolsheviks. Now for a reading from Russian history. I think you might enjoy this reading, and it comes from the book Land of the Firebird, The Beauty of Old Russia by Susan Massey. She's the wife of Robert Massey, who wrote uh, the last uh, book on the end of the Romanov dynasty, and also that great work. Peter the Great, which was turned into a TV series. Uh, this is about a Russian kind of legend or uh, you know, story about Marushka. Once upon a time, very long ago, there was an orphan girl named Marushka. She was a quiet, modest, and gentle maiden. None could embroider as beautifully as she. She worked with colored silks and glass beads, making for one a shirt, for another a towel or a pretty sash, and she was always content with the money she received, however small. The fame of her skill reached the ears of merchants beyond the seas. From near and far they came to see her marvelous work. They gazed and were amazed, for they never thought to find anything so beautiful. One after another they tried to persuade Marushka to come away with them, promising her riches and glory but she would only lower her eyes and reply modestly, Riches I do not need, and I shall never leave the village where I was born. But of course I will sell my work to all who find it beautiful. And with that, although they were disappointed, the merchants had to be content. They left, spreading the word of her skill to the ends of the earth, until one day it reached the ear of the wicked sorcerer, Kashi the Immortal, who raged to learn that there was such beauty in the world, which he had never seen. So he took the form of a handsome youth, and flew over the deep oceans, the tall mountains, and the impassable forests, until he came to Marushka's cottage. He knocked at the door, and bowed low to her, as was the custom. Then he asked to see the needlework she had completed. Marushka set out shirts, towels, handkerchiefs, and veils, each more beautiful than the other. Kind sir, she said, whatever pleases you, you may take. If you have no money now, you may pay me later, when you have money to spare. And if my work should not find favor in your eyes, please counsel me and tell me what to do. I shall try my best. Her kind words in the sight of all that beauty made Kashi even angrier. How could it be that a simple country girl could fashion things finer than he, the great Kashi the immortal? himself possessed, and he took his most cunning tones, and he said, Come with me, Marushka, and I will make you queen. You will live in a palace built of precious jewels. You will eat off gold and sleep on elder down. You will walk in an orchard where birds of paradise swing sweet songs, 
and golden apples grow. Do not speak so, answered Marushka. I need neither your riches nor your strange marvels. There is nothing sweeter than the fields and woods where one was born. Never shall I leave this village where my parents lie buried, and where live those to whom my needlework brings joy. I shall never embroider for you alone. Kashi was furious at this answer. His face grew dark and cried, Because you are so loath to leave your kindred, a bird you shall be, and no more a maiden fair. In an instant a firebird flapped its wings where Marushka had stood. Kashi became a great black falcon and soared into the skies to swoop down on the firebird. Grasping her tight in his cruel talons, he carried her high above the clouds. As soon as Marushka felt the power in those steel claws and realized she was being taken away, she resolved to leave a last memory of herself. She shed her brilliant plumage, and feather after feather floated down on meadow and forest. The mischievous wind covered the feathers with grass and leaves, but nothing could rob them of their glowing rainbow colors. As the feathers fell, Marushka's strength ebbed, and although the firebird died in the black falcon's talons, her feathers continued to live down on the ground. They were not ordinary feathers, but magic ones, that only those who loved beauty and who sought to make beauty for others could see and admire. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast Group, where you may have learned that that book that I read from was signed by the author, and when I was going through and rummaging through my father's late father's uh, books in his library, I came across this, and it was signed on June 7th in 1981. I will have to have somebody translate what was written in there in Russian, since that is not language I uh, read well at all, and I'll you know report to you what was said there. But it was fascinating to, uh, to see that. Uh, again, at the Facebook group, it's become quite lively, and you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion, as many of you have, and I really enjoy the... Uh, the comments and the questions, and thanks for the accolades. That does make me feel good about it. Uh, makes it just that much more enjoyable to do these podcasts for all of you. So, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.